All right, think of a time, if you would, when you felt a great sense of relief. Okay, relief is actually a pretty strong emotion. Um, some would argue that uh, the sense of relief is the greatest sense of emotion, as it were, uh, because it's just so powerful. So think of a time that you had this incredible sense of relief. I was thinking about this, and I know for me, uh, this was back in college. I've had not just one moment of relief, uh, I've had plenty, uh, but one I was thinking about is um, in college, you ride your bicycle everywhere, at least on Ohio State's campus you do, because it's pretty big, and if you don't have a car, mountain bikes are the best way to get around. And it was uh, roughly about 7.15 in the morning, and I'd just gotten home from swim practice, and uh, I hear someone pounding at my door. And so I come to the door and open it, and it's one of my, my teammates, and his face is just blush red, he's just sweating like crazy, and he's like, Michael, you have to get to the hospital, Kyla just got hit by a car. And the, you know, the franticness of his voice and his expression just freaked the heck out of me, and I'm like, what happened, what's going on? And he's like, I don't know, but it doesn't look good. I'm like, well, if you don't know, then don't say that. That's not helpful. And so I rushed to the hospital, and of course, when you're rushing to the hospital and you really have no clue except it's not well, you're thinking the worst. So on my way, I'm like, like she's dead. She's clearly going to die, and I'm going to have to go see her, and this is not going to go well. So I get to the hospital, and it wasn't good. Kyla's face, not her body, but her face went through a windshield. And so when I came and I saw Kyla, I was like, wow, you... I know what he's talking about now. You don't look good. Your face her, was just swollen. She had glass shards just coming out of her, uh, out of her uh, cheek, chin, and her forehead. So it just was not a pretty situation. Uh, she was relatively responsive, but I'm freaking out. I'm in a very passionate voice talking to the doctors, asking them why aren't they doing something for her because she's the most important person in the hospital. And um, after probably about a half hour, 45 minutes of just absolutely so uncertain of what is going to happen to Kyla, the doctor came over to me and was just like, listen, I want you to know she's fine. She's going to be okay. This is just some face, facial lacerations and, and such. But it was amazing to me, as soon as he said, it's going to be okay, the sense of relief that I had, because I was thinking she was going to die or a bunch of different things, all it took was a doctor coming to me saying, it's going to be okay. And just the power of that sense of relief. So I don't know if you've had a moment where you're thinking the worst, but then someone comes along and gives you the news and says, you know what? It's going to be okay. Why I'm sharing this with you, if you've read Romans 1 through 4, one of the things that Romans 1 through 4 does for us is it creates in us an incredible sense of relief. If you just read Romans 1 through 4, you will get to this point where you just have this deep breath and it's a sense of relief. Now, why would you have a sense of relief? And what Romans 1 through 4 teaches us is because we've all sinned, all of us have rebelled uh, against God, God's wrath, as Paul teaches, is against us, meaning there's punishment, there's consequences, the wrath of God is on us because of our sin. Paul spends Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, through, uh, verse, starting at verse 17, all the way through chapter 3, almost in the mid-20s, talking about the wrath of God. 
But then God does something amazing because God is just, because God is righteous, because God is loving. God intercedes, God intervenes. God provides a righteousness for us so that if we receive his righteousness and his son Jesus, we don't have to face God's wrath, God's punishment towards not only sin, but sinners. Romans 1 through 4, it creates in us this this picture of if God doesn't do something, I'm in a lot of trouble. If God doesn't intervene for me on my behalf, there's absolutely nothing I can do. I'm just utterly ruined. And what Romans 1, chapter 1 through chapter 4 is, it gives us an incredible sense of relief that God acted, God intervened, God provided for us a righteousness that if we receive it by faith, we don't stand or to face God's wrath because Jesus did that for us. So this morning, we're turning the corner and really the two questions that I'm going to be asking is, in light of what God has done, this justification, because I am justified with God and before God, how does that actually impact my relationship with God? It's really the so what. God's done all of this, but so what? And I don't say that flippantly. I'm just, it's a question of, well, what do I do? How does this change anything? I get what he's done, but how does that change how I relate with God? And then the second question I'm going to look at this morning is, how does justification, how does it impact the way I should live? How then now shall I live in light of There's got to be something different if God intervened for me that should show up somehow in the way I live my life. Now, before I answer those questions, I wanted to be crystal clear on this word justification. So the first question is, what does it mean to be justified? It might be a big theological word, but justification is a crucial doctrine in understanding our standing with God. So does justification mean that I'm just basically God forgives my sins, and that's it? There's nothing more to it? Answer is no. Justification certainly talks about our sins are forgiven, but it's actually so much more than that. If you want to remember just a very simple definition of justification, it means that I have been declared righteous. God's not making me righteous. I'm not becoming righteous. Justification teaches that we've been declared righteous. Not because of our works, but because of what God has done in his son, Jesus. And those who receive Jesus through faith are justified at that very moment where belief, faith, possesses, not just profess, but possesses you. You are declared righteous in God's sight. Again, just to be crystal clear, I'm not growing in righteousness in hopes that one day I'll done enough and God finds favor on me, I declared righteous. I mentioned this quote a couple weeks back, uh, but it's a, a scholar named A.C. Dixon said this, through the death of Christ on the cross, making atonement for sin, we get perfect standing before God. That is justification, and it puts us in God's sight back in Eden before sin entered. God looks upon us and treats us as if we have never sinned. This is the amazing message and the power of justification. A sinner who sins through faith in Christ can be declared righteous as if he had never sinned before. 
Now, how is that possible? How can God ever look at any of us and say, yeah, it's as if you've never sinned? Because this is the importance of the gospel. When God looks at you, if you have received by faith Jesus Christ, God looks at you and he sees his perfect, completely righteous son in us. And that's how a sinner who sins can be declared righteous as if we've never sinned before. That's justification. I think it's incredible news. It's great news. It's good news. It's gospel. But so what? It's one thing to know that, but what do I do with that? How does this ultimately impact my relationship with God? That's the first question we're going to ask, and there's going to be three parts of how I'm answering this question, meaning it impacts in Romans chapter 5, 1 through 11, it, Paul highlights there's three specific ways justification impacts our relationship with God. Number one is this, and I'll read in uh, chapter 5 of Romans, verse 1. Therefore, okay, the therefore is there in light of everything we just read in Romans 1 through 4. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first impact of justification on my relationship with God is this phenomenal truth that we have peace with God. I just want you to sit with that for a second. I think it is phenomenal that we, as God's created, could ever say of our creator, I am at complete and utter peace with my creator. What a gift from God for us that we can have peace with God. Now, do some surveying of your life right now. The question is, as you consider your life as it is today, do you have peace? Would you respond by saying, my life is marked by peace? I think peace is something we all desire. It's something we all crave. But in many ways, I think peace is something that eludes many for the very reason until we have peace with God, we will never have peace. If you don't know God and are not in right relationship with God, if you've not experienced justification, through faith in Jesus Christ, peace will be something that just eludes you. You know, when someone dies, we say RIP. And what we're saying is, I hope that you rest in peace. The reality is, until we know God, until we are right with God, we, God's created, will never know peace. Now, the peace that Paul is talking about here in Romans 5, this is not like peaceful, easy feeling. Okay, so you can get that song in your head. That's not the peace that Paul is referring to, that I've got this peaceful, easy feeling, I feel good about myself, I like what's going on, and that's not the peace that Paul is talking about. The peace that Paul is talking about is sinners who sin have been declared righteous by God. Therefore, you are no longer God's enemies, but you are seen as sons and daughters of God, and you have peace with God. Now, how amazing is it? This is a question. How amazing is it to know that because of faith in Jesus, you have peace with God? That means there's no room for fear, for anxiety, for worry, or just even wondering, where do I really stand with God? If I have peace with God, I'm, there's no place to wonder, where do I really stand with God? What does God think of me? And 
Am I in good favor with God or am I not in good favor with God? So if justification ushers in peace with God, which means no more wondering where I stand with God, then a follow-up question is just simply, well, then why do I still struggle with that? Why do I get filled with either anxiety or fear or worry or wonder or even doubt of where do I really stand with God? And the simple answer to that is, if that's you, and you still are plagued with this idea of, I don't really know, I don't have assurance that I have peace with God, it's because you're still performing for God. Anytime there's performance in our relationship with God, for God, the performer is always left wondering, did I perform well enough for my audience? And it leads us to this place of not only wonder, but despair of did I ultimately do enough? Performance will rob you of peace with God. Justification says, because of Jesus, because of faith in Jesus, you got peace with God. Complete, utter, absolute assurance that you have peace with God. No more worry, anxiety, fear, or wondering or doubt, where do I stand with God? But if there's anything in us that is still trying to perform for God, you won't have peace. And the reality is, if I don't have peace, I have despair. And that's what performing does. It robs me of peace and creates despair in my life. Uh, A favorite author I quote uh, at least five times every Sunday, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, said this, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. If I'm plagued with depression, despair over my relationship with God, what Charles Spurgeon ultimately is saying here, the only remedy for despair for that depression, is the peace-speaking blood of Jesus. And that only comes, peace with God is not because I perform for God well enough, but because God has done everything and I can receive that. Peace with God. All right, that's phenomenal. Like, I just want you to know, this is amazing that we can have peace with God. You don't have to worry about that. If you have faith in Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, you have peace with God. Not only just now, today, at church, but tomorrow, at work. On Wednesday, when you don't feel like going to work and everyone else is giving you a hard time, you still have peace with God. No amount of emotional distress or my feelings of up and down and the roller coaster ride of life can rob me of this truth that I have peace with God. So that's number one. Number two is not only does justification bring us peace with God, but I love this one. We have now access to God. I have peace with God, and not a God who's just in the distant, but I have now access to God, meaning I can have experience and practice the presence of God. So this is verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This verse 2 again, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Because of 
what Jesus has done, God welcomes us into his presence. And what I love about this, it's not just a one-time deal where you can come meet the president on one moment for one lunch and then you're done. Because of justification, I now have access, continual access to God. And you have to consider why this is such an amazing truth and reality is ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, access to the presence of God was shut off. There was actually, when they were kicked out of the garden, there was a big old angel with a flaming sword who was placed in front of the entrance to the garden, making sure that they would not get back into the garden where God was. But what justification does is we have now access to the the presence of God. Now, again, this might, I hope this sounds like good news, but good news is often followed by the question of, well, if that's true, then why don't I feel like I'm actually experiencing or practicing the presence of God? Why is this? I just, I don't feel like I'm practicing God's presence. I don't feel like God is near. Uh, One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Carson, said this, how dare you, okay, you have to know Dr. Carson, he's a pretty hardcore guy, and because he's so smart, he just can tell people whatever he wants and gets away with it. This is one of those moments. How dare you approach the mercy seat of God on the basis of what kind of day you had, as if that were the basis of our entrance into the presence of the sovereign and holy God? Who are we to think, because we're having a crummy day, things aren't going my way, that somehow that has impeded, impacted my my ability to have access to God, to be in God's presence. He goes on to say, this is works theology. It has nothing to do with grace and the exclusive sufficiency of Christ. Nothing. Meaning what his point is, access to the presence of God is not based on my performance or my feelings on any given day. The only reason that I can have access to God practice the presence of God is solely because of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's it. Justification brings me peace with God and it brings me the presence or access to God. Now, what do you do? If you're a person who's in the presence of God, what do you do? What does that look like? I know when we get to heaven, the picture is we're going to be worshiping. But the promise of justification says we have access to the presence of God now. So what do you do? If you're the person who's in the presence of God, we have access to God, which justification teaches, what do you do? What does that look like? And towards the back end of verse 2, it says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Meaning the person who's in access to God, practicing the presence of God, I can't stop thinking about God. I can't stop talking about God. I can't stop taking God in, considering how good he is, just his character, his mercy, his compassion. I just can't stop thinking I'm the person who is consumed with God. And in that being consumed with God, what comes out of me is rejoicing, is this picture of a person who is just joyful and rejoicing in who God is and what God has done. That's when you're in the presence of God, That's what you do. I'm thinking about God. I'm talking about God. I'm taking all of God in. Okay, now, 
obvious question maybe is, well, the reality for many of us is, despite having access to God's presence, why do I struggle to practice his presence? Like, I would love to do that. I would love to be taking it in, thinking about it, talking about it, but that's not my reality. That's not my world. Why is it if I have access to God, I'm not really practicing the presence of God? Uh, a helpful book uh, that um, was written by a dishwashing monk named Brother Lawrence uh, in about 16th century uh, wrote a book. It was actually his journal that after he died, then they published it. So I'm not sure if he wanted it published, but they did. And uh, Brother Lawrence life commitment was, I don't want to go one minute without practicing the presence of God. He was a dishwasher, okay? That's what Brother Lawrence did. And so his goal was, I don't want to let one minute, 60 seconds go by where I'm not thinking about dwelling in the reality that I have access to God and practice his presence. And so he wrote in his journal, I drove away from my mind everything capable of spoiling the sense of the presence of God. I just make it my business to persevere in his holy presence. My soul has had an habitual, silent, secret conversation with God. The thing I wanted you to catch in that quote, I drove away from my mind everything capable of spoiling the sense of the presence of God. So my question for all of us, what is spoiling the presence of God in your life? Now, for some, there's just blatant sin, and you need to repent of it. I'm going to have a really hard time enjoying the presence of God if my heart and my head is just filled with lust. Like, that's just not going to work. So for some, what's spoiling is just blatant sin. But for others, it's not necessarily blatant sin. It's that we're just not paying attention to the things we're allowing into our lives that distract us and can even consume us. So the question, what is spoiling the presence of God in your life? Honestly, it could just be your consumption of media. The hours spent on Facebook, the hours spent watching TV or movies. Now, I'm not condemning any of those things, but what I'm saying is, is your intake of media distracting you, spoiling the presence of God in your life? Because you've got so many things coming at you and you're hearing so many different things that it's just spoiling the presence of God. For some, it could just be work. I'm so consumed with my work that work, it's good to work hard and to be faithful and disciplined and to honor God in your work, but not at the point where it's now become an addiction and it's ultimately a distraction from practicing God's presence because you're just consumed with that. So the list could be long, but the question is just simple. What's spoiling the presence of God in your life? And to Brother Lawrence's point, to Paul's point, drive it out of your life. That's another way of saying repent of that so that we, because we've been justified, can enjoy having access to God all the time. One of the things that Paul points out in these next few verses is an incredible spoiler to the presence of God in our life is suffering. When suffering comes, it's a fair question, do you drift away from God or do you drift towards God? This is what Paul says in Romans 5, 3, and 4. Okay, he's telling us to rejoice because we have access to God, presence of God. He goes on, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, 
and character, hope. How is it possible and why would anyone ever look at their sufferings and be like, yeah, this is, this is phenomenal. I love it. Bring it on. Like, why would you ever do that? This is the command that Paul gives is when suffering comes, rejoice in it. Okay, this is not the guy who's just got the goofy smile on his face where his world's falling apart and he's just got this goofy smile on his face. Paul is talking about a deep conviction of our soul that from the depths of our soul, when suffering strikes, rejoicing comes out. Not that I'm happy, this emotional happiness because suffering is coming, but I can rejoice because when suffering comes, it's evidence that God is up to something in my life, that God is at work in my life. So when suffering comes, my reaction is I can either get bitter and angry and complain and just get frustrated, ultimately, which just leads to drifting from God, or I can see the sufferings that come and say, you know what? God's at work in my life. I'm either going to submit to that or, meaning I'll persevere, I'll stay, I'll stick, or you know what? I just want relief, and so I'll take the quickest, easiest way out first. How do you know if you're one who suffers well? Meaning, another way to ask that question is, go back to an initial question, is your suffering drifting you from God or is it drawing you to God? Just consider the last time you got squeezed, okay? Pressure of life, whatever it may be, what came out of you? When you got squeezed, the persecutions, the trials, the pressure, when you got squeezed, something comes out of us. So what came out of you? Or another way to think about it is when you get tipped over, what, what tips out of you? What, what comes from you? Is it just this angry, bitter, frustrated person of, yeah, this is my lot in life. Welcome to my life. My middle name is Eeyore. Or is the response when I get squeezed, the pressure's on, the pressure can come in a variety of ways. When I get squeezed, is there just a sense of, you know what? I'm not happy about this, but I'm joyful in this because God is at work in my life. We just, we live in a culture that is more concerned about relief from the pain or from suffering. By the way, I'm not trying, if I guarantee there's people here who are in the midst of suffering right now, and this is not a pep talk for you to suffer well. This is a challenge from scripture is to know that you can embrace suffering in your life as evidence that God is at work in your life. And if you would persevere, not just seek easy relief, an easy way out, if you would persevere, the refinement of your character is what God is trying to do. As it says, perseverance, then character. Okay? Meaning you mature. God matures us so that we look more like a reflection of Jesus than just people who want relief. He says, perseverance, character, and then character, hope. Okay, what is biblically speaking, how does the Bible define hope? Okay, Tuesday night, 8.30, my Ohio State Buckeyes will be playing uh, the Arizona, not Arizona, the Arkansas Razorbacks. I hope, okay, we're 0-9 against SEC teams, okay? I hope that Ohio State finally wins on the big stage against an SEC team. I hope that come a month from now, 
that the New England Patriots, I really hope that they will win the Super Bowl. Okay? I'm expressing a desire, but there's absolutely no assurance that the Buckeyes or the Patriots, albeit great teams, will actually win those games. I'm hoping for something, but I have no confidence or no assurance. I've got, like, with the Buckeyes, it's about 95% assurance. Patriots, pretty close. But I can't say 100% confidence what I'm hoping for will actually take place. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a picture of someone who has faith and it's looking forward. That what God has said, God will do. I've got 100% assurance that when suffering comes my way, God is at work in my life. I can hope with absolute assurance that what God is doing, God will accomplish. That's the difference. I don't have to live in this position of, well, I, I just hope it works out. This suffering is pretty painful, and you know, I hope it turns out you know, for my good and, and maybe for God's glory. When it comes, I can rejoice because I have access to God, and I can rejoice in my sufferings because sufferings is evidence that God's doing stuff. God's refining my character. And in that, I have absolute hope. Okay, this all sounds great. It sounds great to me. I don't know if it sounds great to you. That we have peace with God, that we can have God's presence, which just leads to rejoicing. But how do I really know? <laughs> how do I really know that hope in God will ultimately not turn out to be this great letdown? I can say these things, and you can believe these things, but there's something in the back of our heart, mind, that wonders, will it really turn out? What I'm hoping for, peace with God, presence of God, will I be disappointed? Like, will this be this great divine cosmic letdown because God didn't do what God said he was going to do? And I banked on it. This is what Paul says. And hope, in verse 5, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The biblical answer for why hope will not disappoint is seen in the love that God has poured out. And I just want you to catch this image of God's love was not just declared where God looked from heaven and shouted and hopes that we heard, I love you. What Paul says is God has poured out his love. And the verb tense here of poured out, it's not a one-time deal. It's this, what this word means is that God is continually pouring out his love, meaning divine affection constantly and continually coming into our lives. How do I know that my hope in God is actually going to turn out not in disappointment, but in this will actually take place or this will happen. I've already said we have peace with God because of just, we've been justified. We have access to God because we've been justified. And the third thing is we have the love of God, meaning I can hope in God because God didn't tell me that he loves me. He demonstrated in full force how much he actually loves you and how much he actually loves me. And what Paul is going to do here 
in Romans, these next few verses, is absolutely phenomenal. We live in a culture where I love you is just words, but it's rarely seen. I can tell my wife, Kyla, I love you, but if I'm not dying for her, sacrificing for, serving for, serving her, dying to myself, if I'm not doing that, man, that's just talk. Anyone can tell my wife they love her. We live in a culture where love is just, it's heard, but it's not seen. What I love about what Paul says, we've been peace with God, we've got access to God, and now we have the love of God. I could never accuse God ever, neither could you, of lip service. I can't, God, I've heard you say that before. I get it, you love me, but God demonstrates his love. And if you read uh, six through eight, he says this. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Okay, the difference is die for the righteous man. This is the guy who's moralistically upright. He's the guy who just does everything right because he has to. Maybe someone would die for that guy. Maybe someone would die for the good guy. The difference between the the righteous guy and the good guy is the good guy is not just doing it because he has to. He's the guy who goes the extra mile. So maybe someone would die for the righteous guy. Maybe even for the good guy. But in verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so much could be said about just those three verses right there. But what I want us just to understand and really focus on is God's demonstration of his love. And in order to really get the full weight of how much God actually loves you and how that is demonstrated to you, to me, there's four words in these three verses. Powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. So when you read Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, those four words, we were powerless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies. Uh, Jerry Bridges uh, said this about this very section. It is imperative that we recognize the significance of the chronology of God's redemptive action towards us as his enemies, because only then do we have a platform for appreciating the freeness and magnitude of his life, of his love, as we come to the humble realization that it was all of him and none of us. When I read Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, I am overwhelmed with like, it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with God who is love, demonstrating his love for someone who was powerless to do anything, someone who was his enemy, someone who was a sinner, and someone who's ungodly. That's when God demonstrates his love for us. It's possible someone would do it for a righteous guy, maybe even a good guy, but what God did it, when God demonstrated his love, sent his son, it's when we were still his enemies. Absolutely ungodly absolutely just sinners who sin, people rebelling against God, that's when Christ died for us. Now, some of you, many of you, might not like this comparison, but it would be like one of us not only taking Hitler and forgiving Hitler, saying, Hitler, you're forgiven. It's not like that. It would be like us going to Hitler 
and saying, Hitler, you know what? You are completely forgiven, but I'm, instead of you dying, I'm going to die in your place so that you could continue to live. No one would ever do that. And this is exactly what God has done for us. Now, I realize no one likes, so what are you calling me, Hitler? No, I'm not calling you Hitler. But what I am calling you is you're a sinner just like me. And until I understand in its fullness how offensive and grotesque my sin is to God, I will never understand the weight and fullness of exactly what God has done for me. If I grasp just the the depth of my sin and I realize, wow, God did that for me when I was powerless, when I was ungodly, when I was a sinner, and when I was still his enemy. He still demonstrated his love for me. Okay, what is the impact of justification? We have peace with God, now and forever. We have access to God, meaning continual in his presence. We can practice his presence every day. And we have the love of God as demonstrated in Jesus. That's how justification impacts my relationship to God. And the last question, this will be a very quick one, is, well, how should I live? How now shall I live in light of God's declaring me righteous? I get, I have peace with God, I have access to God, and God's, I have God's love, but how should I live the rest of my life? Now, the beauty of this is we don't have to cover all of this today, and we won't, because the rest of Romans speaks into Because of this, because of what God's done, this is how we are called to live. And I'll give you these last three verses when it says in Romans 5, 9 through 11, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? In verse 11, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's so much in those three verses, and a lot could be said about them, but really the the thing that I want you to get of how does justification impact the way I live my life? And if you can remember this, A justified person is a joyful person. As I read these few verses, and he finishes with chapter or verse 11, but we also rejoice. I've been declared just, not because of me, but because of Jesus. I have peace with God, I have access to God, and I have the love of God. And how this should impact the way I live my life is A justified man or a justified woman is a joyful man or a joyful woman. Joy, as I've already said, is not this surface happiness. Joy is something that is deep down within my inner soul in response to what God's done. In those few verses, Jesus accomplished my justification, Jesus accomplished my salvation, and Jesus accomplished my reconciliation. Because of Jesus, I'm completely right with God both now and forever. That one thought, because of what everything that Jesus has done, stirs in me. I don't need to be the bitter guy, the angry guy, the confused guy, the doubting guy. I can be the joyful man. 
that would be great if it was that easy, right? Because how do you live joyfully in a world that's completely fallen, and maybe in your world that seems to be falling apart continually? And this is the last thing I want you to catch. My joy is not based on my circumstances or my situation. My joy is based, founded, rooted on everything that Jesus has done for me. That's it. Why do I have reason to be joyful? Not because everything is perfect, not because everything is going great, not because I don't have any problems. I have reason to be joyful because Jesus accomplished justification, he accomplished my salvation, and he accomplished that I'm reconciled to God. That's why I have joy. So the simple last question, how do I, how do I be joyful? Well, stop looking at circumstances and situations, start looking at the cross. I'm not trying to be flippant, but it is honestly as simple as if I will be a joyful man or a joyful woman, I will stop looking at the man in the mirror and I will stop looking at the situations going on around me, which could be chaotic, painful, hurtful, and I will start looking at Jesus. That's it. If I look at some of the stuff going on in my life, I can, there's not much joy. Ah, but if I look at Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what he is doing, stirred within me is a joyful man, is a joyful woman. Last uh, quote I'll give you from Mr. Martin Luther. In the bonds of death he lay, who for our offense was slain. But the Lord is risen today. Christ hath brought us life again. Therefore, let us all rejoice, singing loud with cheerful voice, hallelujah. That's a joyful man or a joyful woman. I'm walking around saying, man, God is amazing. I have peace with God. I have access to God. God's demonstrated his love for me. Because of that, Joy flows from me. It doesn't matter what's happening around me because I can trust God's using that for my good, for his glory. But I can just say, wow, God is a good God. He's a gracious God. Because of this important doctrine of justification, we have peace with God, we have access to God, and we have the love of God and how it impacts how I live my life joy. So we're going to worship here for a bit. We're going to celebrate communion. And today, what I, I sincerely hope and desire is that as we approach the communion table, as we approach worship, not just as songs, but a response to Jesus, what Jesus has done, his perfect life, painful death on a cross was resurrected on the third day. My faith in Jesus means I've been declared righteous because Jesus is righteous. I have peace. I have access. I have love. A joyful response to who God is and what God has done.